Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. My name is Melody Wang, and I'm a junior at Harvard University and a member of the AEI Executive Council program. For today's episode, I'm excited to share an interview with AEI's Dr. Rick Hess on school reopenings across the country, as well as about his new book titled A Search for Common Ground, Conversations About the Toughest Questions in K-12 Education. Before I get started, I wanted to let you know that the AEI Executive Council program gives current undergraduates the opportunity to engage with AEI scholars through conversations like this one and to improve the quality and diversity of public policy dialogue on campus. If you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses across the country, just check out the link in the show notes and make sure to follow us at AEI for students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Campus Exchange and to give us a rating to help others find the podcast. With that, here's my conversation with Dr. Rick Hess. Hi, Dr. Hess. It's good to see you again. And thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. So I'd love to basically jump right in. We know that school reopenings and education during COVID-19 are some of the most commonly discussed issues in light of the pandemic. And so just to get started, I'd love to hear your general thoughts on school reopenings over this past year. And so while the situation is different from state to state and even district to district, what do you think we did well overall? And what do you think we did perhaps poorly? Hi, Melody. Hey, good to be with you. Good to see you. So there's a couple of different things going on with school closings and reopenings. First off, 12 months ago, last spring, none of us knew what the heck was going on. People were terrified. We didn't know, understand exactly how aggressive the spread would be or how lethal COVID would prove to be. And so it was better to err on the side, side of caution. I think reasonable people were arguing last March 2020 whether schools should close, but I think the decision to close it made a lot of sense. Schools basically shut down across the country and didn't reopen. By last summer, we had a pretty good sense that COVID, COVID is a risk. It has, it has killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. But we also have to, you know, part of any decision, any public decision especially, is always about weighing sources of risk. And so we had to think about how much of a risk did COVID pose versus the alternative, say, of not opening schools. And by last summer, I think it was pretty clear that if you were going to run schools with a six feet of distance, socially distanced, and with appropriate personal protective equipment, and with some modifications, that you should absolutely have kids in school at least half time. This was, I think, entirely consistent with the evidence. Schools which opened last fall in states like Iowa and Florida, or you know, thousands of private schools across the land, many of them opened five days a week, and it turns out that they were actually probably safer for those kids than having schools closed altogether. That's because it turns out that much safer to have kids masked, organized, and supervised than to have lots of 10 or 16-year-olds running around with nothing to anchor their lives. So that was the first problem was that across the U.S., the vast majority of public schools were closed even last fall when school opened. This turned into quite a political issue, partly because then-President Trump pushed for reopening. So in blue communities, opposing school reopening became a sign of virtue. 
the teacher unions did their damnedest to keep schools closed for reasons that, yeah, we could talk about. Some of them with an understandable sense of risk aversion. Some of that pressure just seems hard to justify in any reasonable way. And then what we have seen this year, even after the big kind of Christmas, New Year's boom, even as we saw COVID come back down, even as we became more and more sure that it posed little or no threat to children, we saw schools across the land were incredibly slow to reopen. In fact, even as late as February, we saw teacher unions talking about maybe not only do they need to keep schools shuttered this year, but into the coming academic year. So where we stand now is across the country, less than 10% of schools are now fully remote. Most kids across the country are attending either hybrid, so part-time, or even five days a week. We know that the consequences of schools being closed have been devastating for kids. We know that kids' emotional and mental well-being has taken a huge hit. The numbers are scary. We know that the academic consequences have been enormous. It's very much up in the air how we're going to help kids get back on track. Absolutely. So you've briefly touched on this in your previous answer, but I'd love if you could elucidate a bit on who and all are the relevant stakeholders in deciding the timeline for school reopenings. In other words, who has been advocating for earlier school reopenings and which groups seem to be a bit more hesitant? Sure. So, I mean, it seems, you know, it's pretty obvious to me that by far and away, the most important constituency should be families. The real question here is what's best for students and and families? And the interesting thing is there's a split. There is a large segment of families that have been hugely impacted by this. People who live in tight quarters, people who live in unstable environments, people who don't have good internet hookups, parents who themselves are essential workers or have to work and were somehow tasked with keeping an eye on their six-year-olds or seven-year-olds. And so you have a huge number of parents who were eager to get schools open because it's the right thing for the kids and the right thing for the families. You also have lots of parents who are very nervous about sending kids back to school. They're nervous about COVID spread. They have folks who are vulnerable in their households. Many of them you've seen higher rates of concern, for instance, in the Black community. Black communities, not surprised, as we all know, have been harder hit by COVID, and particularly in terms of rate of fatalities. And so there's an understandable nervousness. So when you think about parents, there's actually pressure on schools from both directions. Folks who are eager to get schools open earlier and folks who are hesitant about sending kids back. Another key stakeholder group, obviously, are the people who work in schools. It has always been understandable, as I mentioned a moment ago, that school staff, especially teachers, but also everybody else who works in schools, would want schools to be careful about their health situation, to make sure they're getting appropriate personal protective equipment, to make sure schools are socially distanced, to make sure schools are masked. No brainer. It's also fair to say, look, some number of teachers and school staff are vulnerable. They're immunocompromised or they're over age 55 or 60. And we, we did a big AEI report last May, working with about two dozen educational leaders across the country, former superintendents and state chiefs, talking about how accommodations had to be made for, say, this 20% of the staff. So they obviously are an important stakeholder group. And look, I think the third key group here was the folks who pay for schools, policymakers, school boards who manage the funds, school leaders. And the reality is they have been, I think, pulled by in two directions. One, they've been pulled by the understanding that they have to do the right thing for kids, which means if it is safe for schools to open, schools need to be there for kids. 
They've also been pulled by understandable concerns and risk aversion among staff and community. My big concern is I think a lot of these decisions were not necessarily careful calibrations of what's best for the kids, but oftentimes they figured, well, better err on the side of keeping doors closed. And I think that was, when approached that way, was a bad decision for kids and a bad decision for families and communities. Absolutely. I think that's an excellent point you bring up about families in particular, because I think we often speak about students being the biggest losers of this pandemic in terms of learning attrition and massive losses in educational quality. But I agree. I think we haven't spoken nearly as much on parents in particular. And so how would you say parents have faced the detrimental effects of their kids being at home for schooling and education? It's such an interesting question. I think there's really, it's gone two directions. One, you have some number of parents who have been like, this is awful. I'm overwhelmed. I'm a single parent. I have an essential job. I have to go out and deliver food, or I have to go out and work at the grocery store, or I have to go walk, you know, I have to go work as a cop or an ambulance driver or an EMT. And for these parents, it's been a huge burden. And you've lots of parents who've been like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. It is so difficult to keep an eye on kids. Bless those teachers. On the other hand, you've also had huge numbers of parents who've been like, what the hell do they do in school all day? This asynchronous stuff. They've given me 17 minutes of lessons here. What do the kids do for the other six hours? Are they really learning nothing? Parents who have actually appreciated the transparency because they're deeply concerned by what they see teachers talking about with kids. Or parents who say, this is your idea of good instruction. Three hours of teachers are Zoom, you know, running a disorganized Zoom call with 25 kids. So, and for those parents, you've actually seen support for homeschooling go up by about 10 to 15 percentage points during the pandemic. Because I think a lot of parents have either had second thoughts about what's happening to their kids in the school they usually attend, or who have actually really enjoyed having the chance to spend more time around their children. Now, maybe they don't want to be doing this 40 hours a week. Maybe they can't afford to be doing it. But parents who are more open to hybrid models, to having kids go to school from home some days or for some portions of a school day. And so when we look at how families have been affected, sometimes when you're reading like when NPR does its feature, it wants to be like, this is the story. And the truth is, there's actually lots of stories and trying to figure out, you know, which ones are more typical is something that we're going to be wrestling with over the next several months. It definitely sounds like there's been a lot of divergent viewpoints and perspectives on this particular issue. I'd like to ask in a similar vein, how do you think the pandemic has affected parents' perceptions of alternative schooling, such as private slash parochial schools or school choice in general? We remember talking last spring that there was never a better poster for school choice than what we have seen the last year. First off, look, this, this is a case study in the fact that different children and families have different needs. Some families are eager to get their kids back into school because it's essential. The kid needs it or the family circumstance dictates it. Other families have really liked having the kid home or are terrified of sending their kid back because they have, say, other family members who are immunocompromised. The answer here is that we need families to have the ability to choose the learning environment that's right for their child and right for their situation. You know, a second thing we've seen is, look, quite frankly, we were talking a few moments ago about how there are a handful of states like Wyoming and Iowa and Florida that opened almost immediately, and many, many of the districts five days a week from Labor Day with 
no evidence that it had adverse consequences for kid or community health. But most states and most communities across the country had their schools shuttered. Well, the proof point that you could actually send kids safely to school in Boston or New York or Washington, D.C., was provided by private schools who opened their doors, who showed that with responsible measures, masks and social distancing and PPE, that they could run with no evidence of outbreaks. And in fact, some evidence, again, like I mentioned, the kids are actually were actually healthier and that it was good for communities because you had a potential vector that was actually organized and in a supervised environment. So thank heavens. You know, a third thing is if you just look at public opinion, you see what you probably would expect, which is support for school choices up over the past year. Support for school choices up, support for various forms of school choice are up. And the most interesting, as I mentioned, support for homeschooling is up. You might have thought, you know, if there was anything that was going to sour Americans on homeschooling, it was having their schools, you know, lock the door and saying, here, you deal with your kids for 12 months. You might think parents are like, oh my gosh, it's driving me crazy, or it's more than I can feasibly handle. And for some families, that was the case. But it turns out for huge numbers of families, looks something like 30, 40% or more, they actually said, hey, I really like this. And I don't want to send my kid off to a school every day, necessarily going forward. And those families, I think, are going to be looking for school provision, which is far more flexible and far more accommodating of the kinds of hybrid models that they said they want than has historically been the case. Frankly, that could be a big headache for folks who are used to running school districts because that's just not how they're set up. Certainly. And I'm really glad you brought up that point on homeschooling, since I think that leads really well into my next question. We've already heard a lot of buzz surrounding the prospect of hybrid homeschooling or the indefinite use of home-based learning as the future of education. Do you think the integration of technology will be a permanent transition for educational systems across the country? So, yeah. So, you know, for folks who are interested, my colleague, Mike McShane, AI scholar and head of research at EdChoice, has out with a wonderful book on kind of what they call hybrid homeschooling, which predated the pandemic for folks who don't know this, that, you know, the idea of homeschooling is obviously educate the kid at home. Hybrid means you do this in partnership with the school, which can provide supports or electives or coaching or stuff parents can't provide. And the big bridge there is almost always technology. And look, the, the problem with how we've done technology and education too often has been that it actually hasn't been focused on solving problems for kids and teachers. So lots of times, you know, if you go back long enough to like when I was, you know, last century, when I was in school, you would have this thing where you'd have like these big blocky kind of desktop computers against the wall of a classroom. And in high school, at some point you would turn around and you would type an essay on them in English. And they were basically the world's most expensive typewriters. And you would do that for 20 minutes and then you would print it out and then you'd go back to your desk and everything was back to normal. Well, this is a crazy way to use technology. But it's a lot how we do it. If you go to your fifth grade classroom 12 months ago, what they would probably be doing is they would be looking up some stuff on Wikipedia so they could cut and paste it and plagiarize it and, and, and put it into their PowerPoint that they would then. There's no learning going on here. There's nothing that's actually mastering new skills. Teachers are watching kids cut and paste onto a clipboard on a computer. This is crazy. If you think about how we usually use technology well, you could just like go. I don't know, to like a high school football team and see a very different example of how it's used. Like if you wanted to coach high school football 30 years ago and you wanted to explain the plays to your players, what you would do is you get a chalkboard or a whiteboard and you would write up X's and O's with a marker. 
and you would walk students through what was going on, and then you'd go down the field and practice it. It turns out to be a lousy way to learn X's and O's because you're not seeing it in real life. So today, what a coach will do is they'll give each player an iPad, and they'll have all the plays from the team they're going to play that played last week. And they'll have the 30 or 40 plays on the iPad, and they will have marked it up in iPad highlighting so kids can look at it. And you're looking at real players, do real stuff with tech, and then you go out and you practice it. So instead of a coach having to spend 10 or 20 minutes trying to explain with words something that can be more easily seen, you let folks see it and then do it. So it changes the role of coach from dumping a bunch of information with words and chalk on kids into helping them actually practice the repetitions. If you think about what that would mean, say, for a ninth grade algebra class or like a fourth grade reading class, right now we have that ninth grade algebra teacher standing up in front of the classroom, showing examples on a screen, telling kids what to do, and then kids, it's lots of time when the teacher is doing something they're not very good at, which is telling kids about how to do a problem rather than actually putting a hand on the shoulder and working kids through a problem. So the cool thing about what's possible is that we can use technology in a way that actually lets educators do more of what they do well, that it augments them, that it complements them, that which is pretty much the opposite of how we've used technology over time. Now, the problem is the pandemic, we got it all wrong the whole time. Pandemic, we just did all the stuff we do poorly in classrooms and stuck it on Zoom. Or we gave folks a bunch of, you know, boring assignments on asynchronous portals and said, go get them, go download them. But my hope is as we're coming back, as we've experimented with tech, as we've gotten comfortable with tech, we're not going to go back from it. But the real question is, are we going to use it in ways that really help teachers and learners do more of what they're already doing well in a way that supports that? And I'm optimistic we're going to, by dribs and drabs, we're going to start to stumble our way there. Absolutely. I want to shift gears a little bit for my final few questions. We know that in wake of the pandemic, many states had postponed or canceled the administration of statewide exams and standardized tests. Do you think we will continue to see the phasing out of these national or state-level exams as part of the long-term consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic? No, I don't think we will, and I don't think we should. I'm somebody who's long been concerned that we wound up getting test-obsessed. I'm a big fan of reading math tests. They tell us important stuff. Every good teacher is assessing kids from the first moment they walk in their classroom. They're asking them, hey, how you doing? What'd you read last night? What did that mean to you? Assessing is part of teaching. It's not some weird thing. And making sure that kids are literate and numerate is part of what schools are supposed to do. And we need that information so that parents and educators have good benchmarks. But we wound up over the last 20 years, we forgot that the tests were supposed to work for us. And too many times we wound up with schools that work for the tests. They became the organizing principle of instruction. They became what teachers talked about in the teacher's lounge. They became the way we talked about everything that schools are supposed to do. And I think in that sense, what we're going through is a healthy correction. And there's certainly, you know, the unions, the teacher unions, for instance, would love for tests to go away. But I think there are too many people who understand that the tests are an invaluable backstop, that they keep an eye on the kids who are otherwise were served, the kids who could be too readily left behind, that they're a way to make sure that we're getting some baseline level of performance. And so I think we're going to wind up with less testing and more flexible testing. But I think that backbone of federally mandated testing is going to stay in place. And I'm glad. 
Absolutely. So to talk more generally about perhaps some long-term consequences or effects, without too much call for speculation, what do you think will be some of the long-term effects of COVID-19 on students currently enrolled in the K-12 through system, as well as our educational system as a whole? Sure. I mean, for kids, I mean, right, we know that COVID hit different families and different children differently. If you were in, you know, a stable home environment and you had great web connectivity and you had educated parents and lots of books on the shelves, intuition and data tell us educationally you probably came out of this in much better shape. That doesn't mean we know how you came out of this in terms of mental health or your emotional and personal well-being. So look, the first thing is we know in general lots of learning was lost and we have to figure out how to figure out where students are and how to help them catch up. And we shouldn't make presumptions that this is simply a matter of race and ethnicity or whether you live in an urban community or not. It really depends on a student situation, which means we have to make sure we're gauging where kids are so we give them what they need. And we shouldn't make assumptions that we know about emotional and personal well-being because whatever somebody looks like doesn't necessarily give us a lot of insight into their emotional state through the pandemic and at the end of it. So there's going to be huge effects. We know that the share of suicidal thoughts among teenagers went through the charts. We know that sense of loneliness and alienation went through the charts. We know that kids reported not being able to sleep well went through the charts. We know that there's lots of evidence of tons of lost learning. And uh, that's a uh, longer term, a couple things. One, the question is going to be, how are we going to help these students get where they need to get? Some of this is very practical. There were kids who were juniors and seniors in high school the last couple of years, and they missed out on formative opportunities or advanced courses, which is going to have very real consequences, whether they want to go into the military or into the workforce or in a post-secondary education. And that means our usual routines aren't going to fit them. And I'm very hopeful that we're going to be changing the routines rather than telling the students, suck it up. We need to be thinking about how do we deliver that right bridge. The other bigger kinds of changes are going to be like we talked about. Some number of families are more comfortable with homeschooling. Millions of Americans have now held a Zoom call who had never held a Zoom call 12 months ago. They are used to the idea of distance learning and have seen what happens in classrooms because they now get a window into what teachers do. I don't think any of that's going away. Once you have seen what happens in schools, you can't unsee it. So that's going to change how parents think about things. It's going to change, I think, how much information parents expect. I think the chance to engage with their kids at more length and feel more connected to what happens in their kids' education is something that millions of families are going to want to hold on to. And so I think this is going to change both the realities of how school happens and what families want schools and systems to do. Absolutely. Overall, it sounds like we have still much to learn about the long-lasting effects and consequences of the pandemic on the American education system. I'd love to pivot the conversation to discuss some of your other professional endeavors. You've recently published a book alongside Pedro Nogueira called A Search for Common Ground, Conversations About the Toughest Questions in K-12 Education. Could you share a bit on what this book is about and what inspired you to write it? Sure. I don't think it's news to any of us that Americans have, we've not been very good in recent years at talking across our disagreements. We've had a trouble wrestling with the idea that Look, we can disagree and still respect each other. In fact, the disagreement is part of the fabric of this republic, that we're supposed to have different views, and we're supposed to figure out how to argue them out and work them out respectfully and peacefully. And we've had trouble with that. 
And if there's anywhere where we should be providing leadership on this, it's people who are educating America's kids. Schools are supposed to be places where we learn how to wrestle with disagreement, where we learn how to engage and listen and understand. And I think schools have gotten work, and certainly education and the leadership in educational institutions, especially in colleges, universities, has gotten worse and worse at this. So Pedro and I, we felt that we ought to try to do something about this. Pedro is dean of one of the nation's premier schools of education. I'm leader of education policy at a conservative think tank. We come at these issues very differently, but we've known each other for two decades. Back when he was a professor at Harvard, he tried to recruit me back to Harvard after I finished my doctorate. And I was very open-minded of him. And I think a bunch of his colleagues were like, what the heck are you thinking? We don't want that guy back here. We finally got rid of him. But you know, we've known each other and we thought it would be useful for us to try to show what it looked like to actually engage and try to understand why we come at big issues like school choice and testing and civics education from very different places and not try to bridge those gaps with buzzwords or platitudes, but see if we could actually listen enough to understand and to maybe find places amidst our larger disagreements where it turned out we could find common ground or we were on the same page. So that's what we did. We did this over the first half of last year. It was strange time to do it because in the midst of it, the pandemic hit, and then George Floyd was killed while we were working on this. So it turned out to be one of the more disruptive times in the last half century to try the project. But I think in some ways that just highlighted, you know, both the challenges and the opportunities we were tackling. Absolutely. And on a similar note, one reason you wrote this book was to model how to have a productive dialogue, even when, when you disagree with other people. So could you give us a high-level overview of what modeling productive dialogue entails? And in other words, why is it so integral, especially in our increasingly polarized environment? And what does it mean to reach common ground with someone who has possibly wildly different views? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, so the first thing is, you know, when you look around today, Certainly, our public debates are intensely polarized. And if you watch CNN and MSNBC on one hand or Fox on the other, it's the hotheads who show up. And if you're on social media, it's the hotheads who predominate. And this gives you the impression that everybody's a hothead, but it's not. It turns out it's self-selecting. You know, the research suggests this, that the people who show up on Fox and CNN and are on Twitter are not like most Americans. 70 to 80 percent of Americans actually want something more mature and constructive and sensible, but they just don't see it. And so part of the problem is we just don't really see people offering models or suggesting there's another way to do this. Part of it also is how we communicate, that if most of your interaction is on, you know, when Pedro and I spend all our time on talk radio or on panels, the coin of the realm is the quip, the quick line, the zinging factoid that will win the argument. So modeling this in this case for us meant kind of you know, one of the things we stumbled into is realizing that maybe it's not that Americans are less civil than we were 30 years ago. Maybe the institutions we're arguing in and the ways in which they're arguing make us less civil. So maybe we're the same people, but we've absorbed bad habits. And so what Pedro and I wanted to do was see if we could try some different habits. And that's really what we were modeling. So what we would do, the way we did this thing, was instead of us trading tweets or quips on talk radio is we would pick a topic and Pedro would write me 
a long email, basically a letter, right? A letter by email, 800 words. And I would read it and I would sleep. You know, and sometimes I'd be like, that's crazy. You're nuts. And I'm sure he felt the same way about my stuff. And I would sleep on it and I would read it again the next morning. I think I would write back to him. But knowing that he was a friend and knowing that like, and because it wasn't in the public eye and because we weren't trying to win the debate right then and there, and because I had time to, we wound up at the end of the day being more interested in not how dare you say this ridiculous thing, but dude, I like you. You're smart. How could you say this ridiculous thing? And so it became about curiosity. And he would explain, and I'd be like, oh, all right. Well, I totally disagree, but I, 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 okay. So how about this? And what happened was over time, the more we did this, the more we found ourselves kind of like saying, hey, so when you said that before, did you mean this? And what's happened is you develop a level of trust and comfort and familiarity. And that's what's missing. If you go to campus today, you don't find colleges pushing people to engage in sustained, long-form interaction with people who hold different views. It's just not part of what colleges do, even though they should. If you're training to be a school leader or a teacher, you're not being pushed to think about, hey, why would different people in your community feel differently about critical race theory than you do, or feel differently about how we approach transgender access and accommodations issues? Or why would people feel differently about how we teach American history or the 1619 Project? Just not a conversation. Pedro and I say early on in the book, we say we talk a lot in education in particular about courageous conversations, but there's nothing courageous about standing up and speaking to a room full of people who nod along when you say what you say. And the problem is that that's pretty much what we've gotten used to. It's what we wanted to do here was offer a model of something different. Absolutely. So as my concluding follow-up question, after you've finished writing this book, are you more optimistic about the future of substantive dialogue and debate in our American political landscape? For me, this book with Pedro was the most heartening thing I've done, I don't know, in a half decade or more. It was awesome. I didn't convince him on anything. We disagree on most of the important stuff. And I still came away hugely heartened that like, hey, this is how it's supposed to work. This is what education is supposed to be about. On that larger question, I came away very much thinking this is in our hands. If we just keep having these conversations the way we have them, if foundations reward places like AEI based on how much social media traffic we generate, you know, if Ivy League institutions continue to cower before their loudest and most obnoxious students, then I am deeply concerned about our ability to actually hold more constructive conversations or take this in a healthier direction. On the other hand, if we stand up, if people like me and Pedro and others who are fortunate to have been long enough in our careers that we can take some, we can take some slings and arrows, and we stand up and say, hey, it's okay to disagree with your side. Don't provide cover to people who want to stand up and speak their truth. And if college presidents and foundations stand up and say, yeah, we're going to reward people who push back against the lunatics, and we're not going to reward groupthink, and we're not going to reward you know, clickbait, I think it's possible that we can start to create the conditions where that 70 or 80% of Americans who've been just ducking down and trying to stay out of it will feel more comfortable standing up and saying, yeah. Look, like we may disagree, but this doesn't have to be a contest in vitriolic hyperbole. This can just be friends and neighbors saying, look, we like each other. And on some of these things where you vote for politicians, we're going to see it differently. And that's okay. 
Definitely. And on that optimistic note, this, I believe, concludes my conversation about Zoom University, virtual classrooms, and education in light of COVID-19. So, of course, a very special thanks to Dr. Hess for speaking with me on this really important topic. And be sure to check out his new book, once again, titled A Search for Common Ground, Conversations About the Toughest Questions in K-12 Education. Thank you again, Dr. Hess. Hey, my pleasure, Melody. It was fun to be with you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, make sure to give us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click on the link in the show notes. Lastly, please make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students. 